God, we do thank you and we praise you for your commitment to protect and to guard the church, the peace and the purity of the church. And Lord, we pray that you would use this passage and this message to that end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that federal agents uh, do not learn to spot counterfeit money by only studying counterfeit money. They actually learn by studying real, genuine bills so that they have mastered what the real thing looks like. That way, when they encounter the counterfeit money, they are able to easily recognize it. This means that there are objective indicators uh, that, that show if a bill is authentic or not. They look for fine line printing, raised print, watermarks, the size and the weight. And by focusing on these markers, one can discern the real uh, from the counterfeits. Well, just to state the obvious today, identifying counterfeit money is of some value, but being able to recognize and identify false counterfeit teachers is of eternal value. We have false teachers, false teachings all around us, whether or not we know that. In fact, Warren Wearsby kind of puts the, uh, the, the press on us with this. He says that Satan is the counterfeiter. He has a false gospel preached by false ministers, producing false Christians. That Satan plants his counterfeits wherever God plants true believers. Now, the question that's before us and the question that our passage answers today is, do you know the difference? Do you know how to spot? a counterfeit teacher and teachings. Well, that's what 2 Peter is actually all about. Just as there are identifiable marks of a genuine bill, so too there are marks of a false teacher. That's what Peter wants us to know, how to identify those characteristics and those signs of a false teacher. Now, it's interesting when you consider what Peter's strategy has been throughout 2 Peter. Uh, chapter 1 he has started by holding up a picture of what a true, authentic, genuine Christian actually looks like. This is what a, a grace-saturated believer looks like, and he starts there so that when we encounter false Christians or false teachers, we're able to spot them. Well, now in chapter 2, he is giving us specific characteristics of false teachers and their heresies to know how to identify them. Now, since we're called to, to be alert uh, to be watching and to be on guard against the threat of false teaching, what are we supposed to look for? Are we supposed to expect false teachers to stand up in the middle of the church service and say, excuse me, pardon the interruption, but the, the church has gotten it wrong for all of these years. Let me tell you what the Bible actually says. Are we supposed to expect that? Are we supposed to expect somebody to stand up and say, uh, you know, God's not real, Jesus is not actually God? Well, while some of those falsehoods have existed in the church over the years, that's usually not the strategy that false teachers use. They're more subtle in their approach. They sow seeds of doubt. They twist the interpretation of the scriptures. They, they make their false teachings and their heresies more accepting. I want you to consider the very first false teaching that, uh, that, that ever came to be. It was back in the garden. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're approached by Satan the serpent, and he introduces the first false teaching ever. But if you remember, his strategy was not, 
hey, Eve, how in the world can you believe all that God said? That wasn't his strategy. That, that would have been way too obvious. What was his strategy then? It was, did God really say? Right? Sowing seeds of doubt, twisting the truth to make the teaching more acceptable. Now, this morning, I think Peter's going to help us. He's going to provide three specific ways to identify uh, false teachers. But before we do, before we jump into those, I do want to say that to be a false teacher does not mean that you have to have a pulpit. Okay, to be a false teacher does not mean that you have to have some type of teaching platform, that anyone can be a false teacher who claims to be a Christian who is intentionally spreading false doctrine and heresy. And so if you're a small group leader, if you're a, uh, a, a Bible study teacher, if you teach in the children's ministry, if, if you grab coffee with another believer and you talk about Christianity, you talk about the Bible, you talk about the gospel, this passage is for us. This passage is, is for us to consider what a false teacher looks like and for us to avoid that while also for the church as a whole to be on guard against false teachers. And so the, the challenge here, and this is something that we all have to participate in, the challenge here is to avoid creating an environment of suspicion, wondering, oh, is that a false teacher? Is that a false teacher? Oh, he didn't say that word exactly right, while also being on guard, being alert. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, that false teachers rose from among you. They came from within, meaning they probably look like you. you. You probably don't suspect that they are a false teacher, but they are there. So what do we look for? How do we identify them? Well, here are three ways. The first one is to listen to their words. Listen to their words. In verses 10 through 13, Peter uses the word blasphemy three different times to describe what false teachers say with their mouths. It's very interesting. When you think about what false teachers say and the content of their message, and the word blasphemy here means to speak with a, a sense of irreverence toward God, towards the things of God, to disrespect, to devalue God with, with words. Now, according to the text, the false teachers were flippantly, disrespectfully, and irreverently talking about the glorious ones, likely referring to angels or angelic beings. Now, we don't know exactly what they were saying, okay? So we're going to avoid going down that bunny trail for a moment. But what we do know is they were doing so uh, with boldness, they were willful, and they were despising authority, or even slandering these glorious ones, these angelic beings, but their slander, according to verse 12, was rooted in ignorance, okay? Again, the principle, watch, listen to what they say, the content of their message. And in this particular church, there are a couple false teachings that we can already recognize. They're saying something about angels and angelic beings, but we also know is that they were uh, discrediting the judgment of God and the second coming of Jesus, but those are not the only kinds of false teachings out there. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of different false teachings that we need to be aware of. But the principle here is listen to what they say. Now, a couple things to keep in mind as we think about this. Uh, number one, not everything that you disagree with 
justifies as false teaching, okay? Just because you, you don't see eye to eye with something does not automatically mean that's in the category of false teaching. To be honest with you, sometimes what we do when we encounter sound doctrine, truth, and we feel conviction, we feel uh, like the word is confronting us, we can almost have this knee-jerk reaction of saying, oh, I don't like that. That, that has to be wrong. Like that's false teaching. And we can quickly brush it to the side and put it in this camp of false teaching just because it confronts us or it's correcting maybe something that we think or, or the way that we are living. Another thing that, to be on guard about is that not everything that is said that is wrong should be labeled as false teaching. Okay, there is a spectrum within doctrinal and theological error. That just because something is wrong doesn't automatically mean it's heresy. Uh, something that is heretical is getting something wrong that is at the heart of the gospel and the heart of the truth of God's word. So if you get something wrong related to our primary doctrines, these non-negotiable truths like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the sinless perfection of Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith alone, aspects of the gospel, those primary doctrines. You get something wrong with that, that is heresy. Don't do that. But then there are other doctrines, maybe secondary doctrine, maybe a doctrine related to preferences, that if you get wrong, that doesn't make you, uh, uh, it doesn't mean that's heresy or that doesn't make you a heretic. That just means that you're in error. It means that you're wrong. Um, uh, for example, and I love my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, so I'm treading lightly here, but we don't believe that you should baptize infants, right? We, we believe that the mode is by immersion and it's, uh, it's by um, someone who's been converted, believer's baptism. Now, does that make Presbyterians heretics? No, that just means that they're wrong and we're right, <laughs> but they're in error. So not everything that's wrong is false teaching. Another thing to keep in mind is that there is a difference between a false teacher and false teaching or inaccurate teaching. The New Testament, it, there is clear reservation of giving the title to somebody as a false teacher. They, they don't do that lightly. What they're looking for is if a false teacher or a teacher who's, who's uh, teaching things that aren't fully accurate, they're looking to see if they're correctable. A teacher who's not correctable, who doesn't receive cor correction and change, they will give you the, the title of false teacher. Let me give you an example. Apollos, who we got to know in 1 Corinthians a lot, was a very skilled teacher. Well, in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, he's teaching, and he's teaching with a great deal of authority. He's a great communicator. But the text talks about how he wasn't teaching the things of God in a fully accurate way. So the leaders pull him aside and they correct him. And he receives that correction and adjusts. So Paulus is never given the title as a false teacher because he receives it and he teaches accordingly. Okay. Now, as we think about listening to the, te the false teacher's words, just by way of application uh, this morning, so we're going to hit application here in the beginning, I was thinking and wrestling about this passage, and I'm, I'm wondering, how in the world does false teaching creep into the church? What's the process? What does that look like? Or, or what is it about the false teacher's words 
that make their teaching so accepting. And I was thinking about this, and again, just by way of application, I think there are three main gates that false teaching comes through and, and, and resides within the church. There are more than three, but let me give you three of the most popular from my perspective. Here's the first one, is that teaching that suits one's own desires, or, or as Peter describes it, teaching that suits one's own uh, itching ears. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 4 speaks to this, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here's how this works. People will find churches they will listen to podcasts, they will read books, they will read articles, they will go to Bible studies, they will surround themselves with friends who will reinforce what they want to hear more than what they need to hear and more than what the Bible actually says. That their ears are itching and it's with the tickle of unsound doctrine. And the only way to scratch that is by finding teachers, finding sources that will reinforce what they want to hear to suit their own passions and desires. Now, the challenge with this, again, is that it's not always obvious that sometimes these kinds of teachings, they sound biblical, they sound right on, but they're not fully. They might be 80 or 90%, but what's mixed in there are uh, extra biblical ideas or interpretations that have been twisted to make the false teaching more accepting. I mean, consider even the church here. Consider the judgment of God that these false teachers were trying to convince them and persuade them that there's no judgment of God that's going to occur. You think about that, it's like, oh, how in the world could they believe that? But when you back up for a moment and you think about the fact that the judgment of God is a very uncomfortable concept, Standing before a holy God with all of our sin, man, like that, that, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't, that doesn't bring comfort to us. And so these false teachers were coming in and perhaps taking advantage of that discomfort, maybe looking to see whose ears were, were itching towards that bent and trying to supply false teaching uh, to, to persuade them. An example today of heresy that would fit this would be open theism. Open theism uh, tries, to, tries to persuade people that God doesn't know the future, that God is not completely sovereign. And they try to persuade people of this to remove the responsibility from God related to evil. Because in their minds, they think, well, if God knows the future, if God is sovereign over all things, and he knows that evil is going to happen. Why doesn't he stop it? Therefore, he must be responsible. So open theism tries to remove God from being responsible by saying God finds out about the future the same way that you and I do, just in real time. And then he comes in afterwards and tries to make good out of it. It's a heretical teaching. It's a false teaching. But you can see how it can suit one's own desires. You don't like the idea of God knowing the future, including evil. So let's change some things, let's tweak some things, use some scripture, and yet it ends up being false teaching. Okay, now we need to be on guard about this. 
Because we all have blind spots, we all have tendencies, we all have things in the Bible that make us uncomfortable. I've got things in here, I'm like, oh wow, that actually says that in there? Like, whoa, like I wish I could rip that out. But we can't, we, we don't have that luxury of highlighting some verses and, and ripping out other passages and saying those don't exist. So know your tendencies, know your bent, and be careful of what you're listening to. Here's the second gateway uh, that false teaching comes in, is that teaching that overreacts to error. Okay, now this one I think has good intentions where you come across teaching that's unbiblical and out of maybe a type of zealousness to protect the church or protect you or your family, you might overcorrect, overcorrect. you might overreact and you find yourself in another ditch. I think a great kind of image of this is uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, which I talked about this a few weeks ago. I love this book. But John Bunyan is describing the pilgrimage journey to the celestial city, to heaven, and the pilgrim's name is Christian. And Christian is in, he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but there are two dangers, one on each side. One is this huge ditch, and the other one is this dangerous marsh area. And it talks about how Christian had to be very careful by not trying to avoid this danger, this ditch, too sharply to the point where he overcorrects and falls into the dangerous marsh. I think the same is true as you and I, as we encounter false teaching and unbiblical ideas. And we come across this all the time. But be careful how you react to false teaching and unbiblical ideas, because you can overcorrect and find yourself on the opposite end of the pendulum falling into false teaching. The church has wrestled with, there are many examples of this. I'll give you one. In the fifth century, the church is trying to, uh, to make sense of the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, which is a really hard concept, admittedly. But there's this view that came up where it created a sharp division between the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, resulting in two persons, two people. All right, now that's a false teaching. Now, the church denounced this view. They rebuked this view at the first council of Ephesus. But in their zealousness to protect the church of this, they overreacted. They overcorrected. And another false teaching popped up, which was to overemphasize the divinity of Christ that overwhelmed the humanity of Christ, resulting in minimizing the humanness of Jesus. And so they had, a, they had to kind of correct themselves again. And so you see this throughout church history, and you can see it here today, even in our day. So be on guard how you correct and how you interact with false teaching. Third, I think another gateway that's really popular is teaching that makes Christianity more palatable, more palatable. I think, again, the motives here might be, uh, might be positive here. Uh, in an effort maybe to reach more people, uh, in an effort to make Christianity more accepting, uh, maybe to accommodate to the surrounding culture, some will water down the truth. They will water down Christianity to the point where it results in false teaching. And what they want is to make Christianity more palatable. And one of the most popular things to do is to remove some of those hard truths, those hard doctrines, those hard verses, uh, such as the uh, eternal punishment 
or the judgment of God or the idea of repentance or holiness or, or even more ethical aspects about sexuality or marriage or abuse and power in leadership. Just remove some of those things and, and, and we'll have Christianity more presentable to the watching world. Right, now the, the, there are other gates that false teaching enters the church through, of course, but those are the, the most popular in my mind from my perspective. And the point here is to be on guard, be alert about what you're listening to, about what you are hearing. And, and I'll say this, not just to the content or accuracy of the message, but in how that teacher, how that leader is using their words. Peter here describes the use of their words as being bold and willful. And so teachers can use their words in a way that can be emotionally abusive. They can be manipulative. They can hide certain things. They can flatter people for their own advantage. So don't just pay attention to the what, also to the how of what they are saying. I think Jude, I think, picks up on this idea in describing false teachers. He says, these are grumblers and malcontents. They indulge their own lust. They are bombastic in speech, flattering people to their own advantage. Okay, so listen to what they say. Here's another, another way to uh, recognize false teachers is to watch their conduct. Watch their conduct. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. It says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. If you go back up to verse 12, he also described them as being irrational animals, creatures of instincts. What Peter is saying here is that these false teachers are animalistic that they do whatever they feel like doing, disregarding logic, disregarding ethics, just following their instinctual desires. So they don't have a godly filter. Their consciences have been seared. Their, their hearts have been hardened. Now, Peter is here describing in verses 13 and 14, false teachers whose conduct as possessing extreme sexual licentiousness and an unrelenting hunger for sinful pleasure, that they are sexual and pleasure seekers, always on the hunt, but never satiated. Now, one of the things that pops up is, is verse 13. Peter says that they're even doing this in the broad daylight. He says that they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're not trying to hide it. It's just kind of almost out in the open, and they're justifying all of this. He says they're blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, what he's talking about here, the, the early church would, would enjoy what they would call a love feast before they participated in taking the Lord's Supper together and taking that ordinance. So they'd have a meal and they would enjoy fellowship and then they would take, um, they would take communion together. Well, what Peter is saying is that they are reveling in their own deceptions while they are with God's people. So they're enjoying this meal and they're rejoicing in the fact, they're taking pleasure in the fact that they have deceived these other believers in their type of behavior. This is despicable people. 
Verse 14, he continues. He says, they have eyes full of adultery. This literally means their eyes are just full of adulterous women. One commentary said that this means every woman they look at, they look at with lust as a potential sexual partner. They entice or they seduce unsteady souls. We'll get to that more next week. And Peter says they are accursed children. But when you take a step back and you consider the descriptions here, you can basically put their conduct in three different categories, pride, sensuality, and greed. That pride or despising authority you see in verse 10, but also in verses 12 through 13, and they're blaspheming in, uh, also in verse 18. Uh, also, the sensuality, which typically refers to sexual sin, you see in verse 10, also obviously verses 13 and 14, but go all the way back up to verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Greed, which more, most often refers to money, although it's not limited to that. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, this greed that for money, for material gain, this lust, this hunger for power, you see in verses 14 and 15, also back up to verse 3, uh, in their greed, they will exploit you. And look, I know, like reading these descriptions, it's almost like, wow, Peter, tell us what you really think. Like, don't hold anything back. And, and we can easily read these descriptions and think, man, Peter is being so harsh. Like, where's the grace? Like, Peter, you're being a little bit too judgmental. Like, maybe these false teachers just had a bad day. Like, let, let's show them some mercy here. Why are you being so harsh? And the temptation is, is to soften some of the scriptures here, to, to, to kind of almost recoil at what we are hearing in the description of these false teachers. But put yourself in the shoes of Peter. Imagine if your child, imagine if your grandchild was being swayed away by false teachers, away from the truth, into false doctrine, leading, into, leading to eternal destruction. Imagine that. There wouldn't be a parent in this room who wouldn't use fighting language like Peter if that was happening to your child or grandchild. And so like resist that temptation to want to soften scripture here. Like Peter is trying to protect his flock. Peter is trying to be a loving shepherd by bringing the full force fighting language against false teachers. Peter is declaring, don't just pay attention to what they are saying Pay attention to their conduct. Pay attention to how they live their lives. Pay attention to their character, that beneath their doctrinal air, however subtle and deceptive, you will find ethical compromises. And you may not see this overnight, but time will tell. Time will reveal their fruit. That's what Jesus says. Jesus warns us of this in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruits. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says it twice, so we won't miss them. So you won't miss it. You will recognize them by their fruits. And the fruit here, at least related to the true and good teachers, is not the fruit of ministry quantity. 
It's not the fruit of numbers related to their following. It's the fruit related to the quality of their lives, to their character, to their their faithfulness, and to their endurance, for their compassion towards the sheep, towards their character. And fruit, to state the obvious, it's revealed not overnight. It's over a process. Time will tell. False teachers can cover up their sinful conduct for just a short time, but not forever. Why? It's because false teachers are not accountable to anybody. They have nobody asking them about their relationship with the Lord, holding them accountable. They are not repenting of sin. They're not owning their sin. They're not confessing their sin. They're not asking for forgiveness. False teachers prioritize their gifts over their character, their their skills over godliness, which is so interesting because when you look at the New Testament and you see how the New Testament authors are laying out qualifications for an elder, for a pastor, for these, these teachers in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, they emphasize character over gifts. When you look at the list, there's really one gift or one skill, and that's teaching. Everything else is related to godliness. Everything else is related to character. There seems to be just this repeated insistence from the scriptures. Elders must be above reproach. They pit the self-control, the gentleness, the humility that should characterize true leadership over against a harshness of being argumentative, disrespecting authorities, abusing church authority that characterizes wolves. All right, so here's, here's how Jude summarizes their conduct. He says in Jude 4, for certain intruders have stolen in among you people who long ago were designated for this condemnation as ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So, so these aren't teachers who are, who are not perfect. Right? We're all in process. These are teachers who are abusing the grace of God, just swiping the grace card, swiping the grace card, and promoting that type of lifestyle to others. And what false teachers throughout history have shared in common is not just doctrinal error, but it is lies entrenched in pride, sensuality, and greed. These three categories laid out here from Peter. So watch their conduct. This this leads us to our third way to recognize false teachers. Admittedly, this is the most difficult one, but observe what their hearts seek. Observe what their hearts seek. Verse 14b, it says, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Now, greed here means more than just wanting money. I know that's typically how we use it, but this word elsewhere in the New Testament is actually translated as lust. This word actually means to excessively want something that you should not have. It's interesting here because Peter talks about their hearts are actually trained in this. They excel in this. They are doing this regularly and continually in a type of behavior that is all about self-gratification and self-fulfillment. It is me, me, me. That's why they do what they do. Admittedly, again, this is hard to detect. 
You can listen to their words. You can watch their lives. But what's on the throne of their hearts? And so the call here is to discern what's motivating and driving a particular leader or teacher. Is it the glory of God? Is it the beauty of Jesus? Is it the advancement of his name? Or does that particular leader or teacher, do they just want to be in the spotlight? Is it all about them? Are they trying to advance their name, their brand, their platform, their whatever? Do they just want people to say how great they are or how great Jesus is? This is the call for us to identify what's driving a particular leader. And Jesus helps us. Jesus in Luke 6.45 says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. All right, so the tongue is the greatest portrait of the heart. That as you listen and as you watch, you can see what is on the throne of that person's heart. Now, when you get to verses 15 and 16, Peter provides an example, a really good example of a false teacher, false prophet from the Old Testament. This character named Balaam, perhaps one of the most evil prophets in, in, in uh, Israel's history. He's an example who set his words, his conduct, and his heart on what is evil. And what was happening here in Numbers 32 through 24, God's people, they're on the verge of entering the promised land. And there was this evil king, King Balak, who did not want this to happen. He was a foreign king, and he didn't want God's people to enter in. And so he tried to persuade Balaam, this type of prophet, uh, to, to basically put a curse on God's people. And he said, hey, I'm going to give you a ton of money, and I want you to do this. And Balaam agrees. And so he's starting to travel, and he's on his donkey, and he's, and he's on this particular road, and God sends an angel to stop Balaam. Now, Balaam, for whatever reason, doesn't see that angel, but his donkey does. And so his donkey just stops, just doesn't go any, any, any further. And so Balaam hits the donkey a couple of times, and to the point where the donkey responds in a human voice and rebukes this prophet, rebukes Balaam. And that's Peter's point here is that he's basically comparing Balaam to that of an animal, an irrational animal. And Balaam also was the leading voice that led to this sexual revolution with foreign women in Numbers 24 and Numbers 31. Like this is a great example of someone who defied God's law, promoted sexual sin, and received money in exchange. He was bold, he was willful, driven by pride, sensuality, and greed. Well, this is a really encouraging message, isn't it? <laughs> Happy Father's Day. <laughs> you know, as I was thinking about this topic, and we've got another week on it next week, I'll provide a little bit more application. But man, it just, it makes your heart sink, doesn't it? it like there's a, a disheartening result when you think about the fact that this is a real thing. <laughs> like there are, there are false teachers in the church? Are you serious? I mean, it's challenging enough to be faithful to God without them, with our own temptations, the trials and suffering we face, pressure from the outside world, Satan, who's described as this roaring lion seeking to devour. And on top of that, the place, the church, where it should be this place of refuge and encouragement and safety and edification, and you're telling me that from time to time there are false teachers? Are you serious? And, and it, it can be so disheartening. 
I mean, I'm sure even this church that Peter's writing to in 1 Peter, the whole purpose of that is because they were going through persecution. And now 2 Peter, they've got these wolves inside the church. It's like, are you serious? And, and when you think about it, it almost, you take a step back. And the challenge here is that our hope ultimately is not to be found in sound or ethical teachers. Our hope should only be found in Jesus Christ. Like, like we need something much more than sound teachers. We need a savior. We need a rescuer. We need a deliverer, not just Jesus, who by the way, was the greatest teacher ever, the most ethical teacher ever, but he is our rescuer. And so this isn't to make an excuse for false teachers by any means. We need our systems of accountability. We need to watch closely our lives and our doctrine, especially our leaders and our teachers. But the reality is there's no foolproof human system that exists. That's why the apex of this chapter is verse nine, that the Lord knows how to rescue uh, the godly from trials. And he knows how to punish the ungodly. Meaning, look, put your hope ultimately in Jesus. Put your hope in the one who has rescued and delivered you from your sins. Put your hope in the one who gave himself up for you on the cross so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have salvation. Look, that's something that a, a teacher cannot do. A human teacher could never do. These false teachers were self-serving, promoting themselves, and yet we have Jesus who was self-sacrificing, who gave himself up for sinners like you and me so that we could be saved. And so, yes, we have these, these teachers, we have these leaders in the church. It's a wonderful gift. But don't put anybody on a pedestal. Don't put anybody up there except for Jesus. That Jesus is the only one who can hold the weight of your hope put it in him. So Peter provides these three ways to recognize false teachers, to listen to their words, watch their lives, observe what their hearts seek to protect the peace and the purity of the church. Let us guard and inspect our lives to that end. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for hard passages such as these. God, thank you for the reminder for us not to fall into spiritually sleepwalking, but to be on guard, to be watchful. Lord, everything that we hear, everything that we read, Lord, help us to filter it through your word. I pray, God, for, Lord, where our hope is ultimately placed, Lord, we want it to be placed in Jesus, that he is not only the perfect teacher, but he is our great rescuer. God, we thank you for, Lord, your commitment for the church. We pray, oh God, that you'd use this passage to edify us, to correct us, to challenge us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.